Hello, beloved listeners. I do hope you are all keeping well in this, the dark season. Unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, in which case, happy spring. This Halloween, or as I think of it, horror podcast Christmas, I have decided to join in the fun and will be reading a couple of Poe stories which a fellow audio fictioneer drew my attention to recently. The Man of the Crowd, and The Fact in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar. Content warning supply, as is to be expected with stories from this era. Period typical anti-Semitism, classism, disabilism, sexism, whorephobia, and deeply unethical medical experimentation. Now, on to the tales. The Man of the Crowd C'est grand malheur de ne pouvoir être seul. It is a great misfortune to be unable to be alone. La Bruyère It was well said of a certain German book that er lasst sich nicht lesen. It does not permit itself to be read. There are some secrets which do not permit themselves to be told. Men die nightly in their beds, wringing the hands of ghostly confessors and looking them piteously in the eyes. Die with despair of heart and convulsion of throat, on account of the hideousness of mysteries which will not suffer themselves to be revealed. Now and then, alas, the conscience of man takes up a burthen so heavy in horror that it can be thrown down only into the grave, and thus the essence of all crime is undivulged. Not long ago, about the closing of an evening in autumn, I sat in the large bow window of the D Coffee House in London. For some months I had been ill in health, but was now convalescent, and with returning strength, found myself in one of those happy moods which are so precisely the converse of ennui. Moods of the keenest appetency when the film from the mental vision departs. Eclis osprin epien, the mist that previously was upon them, and the intellect, electrified, surpasses as greatly its everyday condition as does the vivid yet candid reason of Leibniz, the mad and flimsy rhetoric of Gorgias. Merely to breathe was enjoyment, and I derived positive pleasure even from many of the legitimate sources of pain. I felt a calm but inquisitive interest in everything. With a cigar in my mouth and a newspaper in my lap, I had been amusing myself for the greater part of the afternoon, now in poring over advertisements, now in observing the promiscuous company in the room, and now in peering through the smoky panes into the street. The latter is one of the principal thoroughfares of the city, and had been very much crowded during the whole day. But as the darkness came on, the throng momently increased. By the time the lamps were well lighted, two dense and continuous tides of population were rushing past the door. At this particular period of the evening, I had never before been in a similar situation, and the tumultuous sea of human heads filled me therefore with a delicious novelty of emotion. I gave up, at length, all care of things within the hotel, and became absorbed in contemplation of the scene without. At first, my observations took an abstract and generalising turn. I looked at the passages in masses, and thought of them in their aggregate relations. Soon, however, I descended to details, and regarded with minute interest, the innumerable varieties of figure, dress, air, gait, visage, and expression of countenance. By far the greater number of those who went by had a satisfied business-like demeanour, and seemed to be thinking only of making their way through the press. Their brows were knit and their eyes rolled quickly. When pushed against by fellow wayfarers, they evinced no symptom of impatience, but adjusted their clothes and hurried on. Others, still a numerous class, were restless in their movement, had flushed faces and talked and gesticulated to themselves, as if feeling in solitude on account of the very denseness of the company around. When impeded in their progress, these people suddenly ceased muttering, but redoubled their gesticulations and awaited, with an absent and overdone smile upon the lips, the course of the persons impeding them. If jostled, they bowed profusely to the jostlers, and appeared overwhelmed with confusion. 
There was nothing very distinctive about these two large classes beyond what I have noted. Their habiliments belonged to that order which is pointedly termed the decent. They were undoubtedly noblemen, merchants, attorneys, tradesmen, stock jobbers, the eupatrids and the commonplaces of society. Men of leisure and men actively engaged in affairs of their own, conducting business upon their own responsibility. They did not greatly excite my attention. The tribe of clerks was an obvious one, and here I discerned two remarkable divisions. There were the junior clerks of flash houses, young gentlemen with tight coats, bright boots, well-oiled hair and supercilious lips. Setting aside a certain dapperness of carriage, which may be termed deskism for want of a better word, the banner of these persons seemed to me an exact facsimile of what had been the perfection of Bon Ton about twelve or eighteen months before. They wore the cast-off graces of the gentry, and this, I believe, involves the best definition of the class. The division of the upper clerks of staunch firms, or of the steady old fellows, it was not possible to mistake. These were known by their coats and pantaloons of black or brown, made to sit comfortably, with white cravats and waistcoats, broad, solid-looking shoes, and thick hose or gaiters. They all had slightly bald heads, from which the right ears, long used to pen-holding, had an odd habit of standing off on end. I observed that they always removed or settled their hats with both hands, and wore watches with short gold chains of a substantial and ancient pattern. Theirs was the affectation of respectability, if indeed there be an affectation so honourable. There were many individuals of dashing appearance, whom I easily understood as belonging to the race of swell pickpockets, with which all great cities are infested. I watched these gentry with much inquisitiveness, and found it difficult to imagine how they should ever be mistaken for gentlemen by gentlemen themselves. Their voluminousness of wristband, with an air of excessive frankness, should betray them at once. The gamblers, of whom I described not a few, were still more easily recognisable. They wore every variety of dress, from that of the desperate thimble-rig bully with velvet waistcoat, fancy neckerchief, gilt chains and filigreed buttons, to that of the scrupulously inornate clergyman, than which nothing could be less liable to suspicion. Still, all were distinguished by a certain sodden swarthiness of complexion, a filmy dimness of eye and a pallor and compression of lip. There were two other traits, moreover, by which I could always detect them, a guarded lowness of tone in conversation, and a more than ordinary extension of the thumb in a direction at right angles with the fingers. Very often, in company with these sharpers, I observed an order of men somewhat different in habits, but still birds of a kindred feather. They may be defined as the gentlemen who live by their wits. They seem to prey upon the public in two battalions, that of the dandies and that of the military men. Of the first grade, the leading features are long locks and smiles. Of the second, frogged coats and frowns. Descending in the scale of what is termed gentility, I found darker and deeper themes for speculation. I saw Jewish peddlers with hawk eyes flashing from countenances whose every other feature wore only an expression of abject humility. Sturdy professional street beggars scowling upon mendicants of a better stamp, whom despair alone had driven forth into the night for charity. Feeble and ghastly invalids upon whom death had placed a sure hand, and who sidled and tottered through the mob, looking everyone beseechingly in the face, as if in search of some chance consolation, some lost hope. Modest young girls returning from long and late labour to a cheerless home and shrinking more tearfully than indignantly from the glances of ruffians, whose direct contact even could not be avoided. Women of the town, of all kinds and of all ages, the unequivocal beauty in the prime of her womanhood, putting one in mind of the statue in Lucian, with the surface of Parian marble, and the interior filled with filth. The loathsome and utterly lost leper in rags, the wrinkled, bejeweled, and paint-begrimed beldame making a last effort at youth, 
the mere child of immature form, yet from long association an adept in the dreadful coquetries of her trade, and burning with a rabid ambition to be ranked the equal of her elders in vice. Drunkards, innumerable and indescribable, some in shreds and patches, reeling inarticulate with bruised visage and lacklustre eyes, some in whole, although filthy garments, with a slightly unsteady swagger, thick sensual lips and hearty-looking rubicund faces, others clothed in materials which had once been good, and which even now were scrupulously well-brushed, men who walked with a more than naturally firm and springy step, but whose countenances were fearfully pale, whose eyes hideously wild and red, and who clutched with quivering fingers as they strode through the crowd at every object which came within their reach. Beside these, pie-men, porters, coal-heavers, sweeps, organ-griders, monkey-exhibitors and ballad-mongers, those who vended with those who sang, ragged artisans and exhausted labourers of every description, and all full of a noisy and inordinate vivacity which jarred discordantly upon the ear and gave an aching sensation to the eye. As the night deepened, so deepened to be the interest of the scene. For not only did the general character of the crowd materially alter, its gentler features retiring in the gradual withdrawal of the more orderly portion of the people, and its harsher ones coming out into bolder relief as the late hour brought forth every species of infamy from its den. But the rays of the gas lamps, feeble at first in their struggle with the dying day, had now at length gained ascendancy and threw over everything a fitful and garish luster. All was dark yet splendid, as that ebony to which has been likened the style of Tertullian. The wild effects of the light enchained me to examination of individual faces, and although the rapidity with which the world of light flitted before the window prevented me from casting more than a glance upon each visage, Still it seemed that in my then peculiar mental state I could frequently read, even in that brief interval of a glance, the history of long years. With my brow to the glass, I was thus occupied in scrutinising the mob, when suddenly there came into view a countenance that of a decrepit old man, some sixty-five or seventy years of age, a countenance which at once arrested and absorbed my whole attention, on account of the absolute idiosyncrasy of its expression. Anything even remotely resembling that expression I had never seen before. I well remember that my first thought, upon beholding it, was that Wretch, had he viewed it, would have greatly preferred it to his own pictorial incarnations of the fiend. As I endeavoured during the brief minute of my original survey to form some analysis of the meaning conveyed, there arose confusedly and paradoxically within my mind the ideas of vast mental power, of caution, of penuriousness, of avarice, of coolness of malice, of bloodthirstiness, of triumph, of bearment, of excessive terror, of intense, of supreme despair. I felt singularly aroused, startled, fascinated. How wild a history, I said to myself, is written within that bosom. Then came a craving desire to keep the man in view, to know more of him. Hurriedly putting on an overcoat and seizing my hat and cane, I made my way into the street and pushed through the crowd in the direction which I had seen him take, for he had already disappeared. With some little difficulty I at length came within sight of him, approached and followed him closely yet cautiously, so as not to attract his attention. I had now a good opportunity of examining his person. He was short in stature, very thin, and apparently very feeble. His clothes, generally, were filthy and ragged, but as he came now and then within the strong glare of a lamp, I perceived that his linen, although dirty, was of beautiful texture, and my vision deceived me, or through a rent in a closely buttoned and evidently second-handed roquelaire which enveloped him, I caught a glimpse both of a diamond and of a dagger. These observations heightened my curiosity, and I resolved to follow the stranger whithersoever he should go. 
It was now fully nightfall, and a thick, humid fog hung over the city, soon ending in a settled and heavy rain. This change of weather had an odd effect upon the crowd, the whole of which was at once put into a new commotion and overshadowed by a world of umbrellas. The waver, the jostle, and the hum increased in a tenfold degree. For my own part, I did not much regard the rain, the lurking of an old fever in my system rendering the moisture somewhat too dangerously pleasant. Tying a handkerchief about my mouth, I kept on. For half an hour, the old man held his way with difficulty along the great thoroughfare, and I here walked close at his elbow through fear of losing sight of him. Never once turning his head to look back, he did not observe me. By and by, he passed into a cross street, which, although densely filled with people, was not quite so much thronged as the main one he had quitted. Here a change in his demeanour became evident. He walked more slowly and with less object than before, more hesitatingly. He crossed and recrossed the way repeatedly without apparent aim, and the press was still so thick that, at every such movement, I was obliged to follow him closely. The street was a narrow and long one, his course lay within it for nearly an hour, during which the passengers had gradually diminished to about that number which is ordinarily seen at noon on Broadway near the park. So vast a difference is there between the London populace and that of the most frequented American city. A second turn brought us into a square, brilliantly lighted and overflowing with life. The old manner of the stranger reappeared. His chin fell upon his breast, while his eyes rolled wildly from under his knit brows in every direction upon those who hemmed him in. He urged his way steadily and perseveringly, I was surprised, however, to find upon his having made the circuit of the square that he turned and retraced his steps. Still more was I astonished to see him repeat the same walk several times, once nearly detecting me, as he came round with a sudden movement. In this exercise he spent another hour, at the end of which we met with far less interruption from passengers than the first. The rain fell fast, the air grew cool, and the people were retiring to their homes. With a gesture of impatience, the wanderer passed into a by-street comparatively deserted, Down this, some quarter of a mile long, he rushed with an activity I could not have dreamed of seeing in one so aged, and which put me to much trouble in pursuit. A few minutes brought us to a large and busy bazaar, with the localities of which the stranger appeared well acquainted, and where his original demeanour again became apparent, as he forced his way to and fro, without aim, among the host of buyers and sellers. During the hour and a half or thereabouts which we passed in this place, it required much caution on my part to keep him within reach without attracting his observation. Luckily, I wore a pair of cold sugar shoes and could move about in perfect silence. At no moment did he see that I watched him. He entered shop after shop, priced nothing, spoke no word, and looked at all objects with a wild and vacant stare. I was now utterly amazed at his behaviour and firmly resolved that we should not part until I had satisfied myself in some measure respecting him. A loud-toned clock struck eleven, and the company were fast deserting the bazaar. A shopkeeper, in putting up a shutter, jostled the old man and at the instant I saw a strong shudder come over his frame. He hurried into the street, looked anxiously around him for an instant, and then ran with incredible swiftness through many crooked and peopleless lanes, until we emerged once more upon the great thoroughfare whence we had started, the street of the D Hotel. It no longer wore, however, the same aspect. It was still brilliant with gas, but the rain fell fiercely and there were few persons to be seen. The stranger grew pale. He walked moodily some paces up the once populous avenue, then, with a heavy sigh, turned in the direction of the river, and, plunging through a great variety of devious ways, came out at length in view of one of the principal theatres. It was about being closed, and the audience were thronging from the doors. I saw the old man gasp as if for breath while he threw himself amid the crowd, but I thought that the intense agony of his countenance had in some measure abated. His head again fell upon his breast. He appeared as I had seen him at first. 
I observed that he now took the course in which had gone the greater number of the audience, but upon the whole I was at a loss to comprehend the waywardness of his actions. As he proceeded, the company grew more scattered, and his old uneasiness and vacillation were resumed. For some time he followed closely a party of some ten or twelve roisterers, but from this number one by one dropped off, till three only remained together, in a narrow and gloomy lane little frequented. The stranger paused, and for a moment seemed lost in thought. Then, with every mark of agitation, pursued rapidly a route which brought us to the verge of the city, amid regions very different from those we had hitherto traversed. It was the most noisome quarter of London, where everything wore the worst impress of the most deplorable poverty, and of the most desperate crime. By the dim light of an accidental lamp, tall, antique, worm-eaten, wooden tenements were seen tottering to their fall, in directions so many and capricious that scarce the semblance of a passage was discernible between them. The paving stones lay at random, displaced from their beds by the rankly growing grass. Horrible filth festered in the dammed-up gutters. The whole atmosphere teemed with desolation. Yet, as we proceeded, the sounds of human life revived by sure degrees, and at length large bands of the most abandoned of a London populace were seen reeling to and fro. The spirits of the old man again flickered up, as a lamp which is near its death hour. Once more he strode onwards with elastic tread. Suddenly a corner was turned, a blaze of light burst upon our sight, and we stood before one of the huge suburban temples of intemperance, one of the palaces of the fiend, Jinn. It was now nearly daybreak, but a number of wretched inebriates still pressed in and out at the flaunting entrance. With a half-shriek of joy, the old man forced a passage within, resumed at once his original bearing, and stalked backward and forward, without apparent object among the throng. He had not been thus long occupied, however, before a rush to the doors gave token that the host was closing them for the night. It was something even more intense than despair that I then observed upon the countenance of the singular being whom I had watched so pertinaciously. Yet he did not hesitate in his career, but with a mad energy retraced his steps at once to the heart of the mighty London. Long and swiftly he fled while I followed him in the wildest amazement, resolute not to abandon a scrutiny in which I now felt an interest all-absorbing. The sun arose while we proceeded, and when we had once again reached that most thronged mart of the populous town, the street of the D Hotel, it presented an appearance of human bustle and activity scarcely inferior to what I had seen on the evening before. And here, long amid the momently increasing confusion, did I persist in my pursuit of the stranger. But as usual, he walked to and fro, and during the day did not pass from out the turmoil of that street. And as the shades of the second evening came on, I grew wearied unto death, and, stopping fully in front of the wanderer, gazed at him steadfastly in the face. He noticed me not, but resumed his solemn walk, while I, ceasing to follow, remained absorbed in contemplation. This old man, I said at length, is the type and the genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. He is the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow, for I shall learn no more of him nor of his deeds. The worst heart of the world is a grosser book than the heartless animi, and perhaps it is but one of the great mercies of God that er last sich nicht lesen. The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of Monsieur Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. 
Through the desire of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had farther opportunities for investigation, through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society, and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations and very naturally of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts, as far as I comprehend them myself. They are succinctly these. My attention for the last three years had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago it occurred to me quite suddenly that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen first whether in such condition there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence, secondly, whether if any existed it was impaired or increased by the condition, thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity, last in especial from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend Monsieur Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica, and author, under the nom de plume of Issachar Marx, of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. Monsieur Valdemar, who has resided principally at Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person, his lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter in consequence being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance, I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed phthisis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution as if a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was of course very natural that I should think of Monsieur Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for, although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character that would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination in death, and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about twenty-four hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from Monsieur Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P, you may as well come now. D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, 
The eyes were utterly lusterless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and when I entered the room was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in the bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for 18 months in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The right, in its upper portion, was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercules running one into another. Several extensive perforations existed, and, at one point, permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. These appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date. The ossification had proceeded with very unusual rapidity. No sign of it had discovered a month before, and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days. Independently of the phthisis, the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta, but on this point the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that Monsieur Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow, Sunday. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, Doctors D and F had bidden him a final farewell. It had not been their intention to return, but at my request they agreed to look in upon the patient about ten the next night. When they had gone, I spoke freely with Monsieur Valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and a female nurse were in attendance, but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in case of sudden accident, by proof. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student, with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L. L., relieved me from farther embarrassment. It had been my design originally to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed, first by the urgent entreaties of Monsieur Valdemar, and secondly by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. Mr. L.L. was so kind as to accede to my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred, and it is from his memoranda that what I now have to relate is, for the most part, either condensed or copied verbatim. It wanted about five minutes of eight. When taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state, as distinctly as he could to Mr. L.L., whether he, Monsieur Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly, Yes, I wish to be mesmerized. Adding immediately afterwards, I fear you have deferred it too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead, but although I exerted all my powers, no farther perceptible effect was induced, until some minutes after ten o'clock, when Doctors D and F called, according to appointment. I explained to them in a few words what I designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation. Exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time, his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertorous, 
and at intervals of half a minute. This condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although a very deep sigh, escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, its stertorousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was chained for that expression of uneasy inward examination which is never seen except in cases of sleepwalking, and which it is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes I made the lids quiver as an incipient sleep, and with a few more I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously, and with the fullest exertion of the will, until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer, after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loins. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine Monsieur Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be in an unusually perfect state of the mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L. L. and the nurses remained. We left Monsieur Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning, when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position, the pulse was imperceptible, the breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached Monsieur Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the ladder gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But to my astonishment, his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. Monsieur Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips, and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of a ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleep-waker again. Do you still feel pain in the breast, Monsieur Valdemar? The answer now is immediate, but even less audible than before. No pain. I am dying. I did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., who came a little before sunrise and expressed unbounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep-waker again. I did so, saying, Monsieur Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval, the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. 
At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Yes. Still asleep. Dying. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish of the physicians, that Monsieur Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition, until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleepwaker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the centre of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of the departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip at the same time writhed itself away from the teeth which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of Monsieur Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in Monsieur Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses, when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are indeed two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh, and broken, and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable, for the simple reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance or from some deep cavern within the earth. In the second place, it impressed me, I fear indeed that it would be impossible to make myself comprehended, as gelatinous or glutinous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both of sound and of voice, I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully, thrillingly distinct, syllabification. Monsieur Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, Yes. No. I have been sleeping. And now? Now. I am. No person present even affected to deny or attempt to repress the unutterable shuddering horror which these few words, thus uttered, were so well calculated to convey. Mr. L.L., the student, swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. For nearly an hour we busied ourselves, silently, without the utterance of a word, in endeavours to revive Mr. L.L., when he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of Monsieur Valdemar's condition. 
It remained, in all aspects as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention, too, that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavoured in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed Monsieur Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavoured to place each member of the company in mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleep-waker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L.L. In the afternoon, we all called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by doing so. It was evident that, so far, death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken Monsieur Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From this period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at Monsieur Valdemar's house, accompanied now and then by medical and other friends. All this time, the sleeper wake remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening, or attempting to awaken him. And it is the, perhaps, unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving Monsieur Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids, of a pungent and highly offensive odour. It was now suggested that I should attempt to influence the patient's arm, as heretofore. I made the attempt and failed. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so as follows. Monsieur Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before. And at length the same hideous voice which I have already described broke forth. For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep, or quick, wicked me, quick, I say to you that I am dead. I was thoroughly unnerved and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first I made an endeavour to recompose the patient, but failing in this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete, and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, amid ejaculations of absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, 
His whole frame at once within the space of a single minute or even less. Shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putridity. A Little Poe for Halloween is a Cytochrome Hair production brought to you from the entirely vital and not at all putrid tongue of Lou Sutcliffe, who also wrote the score and did the editing. Have a wonderful spooky season, and good night out there. Whatever you are. Ha 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 ha!